Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Hello and welcome to Your World on Rather to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisola Hoko, and Msibudi Makura. Top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour. The AU's high level delegation of heads of state arrive in Burundi's capital, Bujumbura, for peace talks. And the UN Secretary-General uses his one-day visit to South Sudan to request President Salva Kiir and his principal political and military opponent to establish a transitional government of national unity without further delay. In sports news, South Africa's FIFA presidential candidate Toke Sohwale's camp remains cautious ahead of today's FIFA election. But first up, the news was Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma says only dialogue will help end the current political and security crisis in Burundi. Zuma's leading and African Union high-level panel on Burundi aimed at breaking a deadlock on the stalled talks in the conflict-ridden country. The other panel members are the presidents of Senegal, Mauritania, Gabon and Ethiopia. They'll meet stakeholders like political parties, civil society organizations and religious groups in Burundi's capital, Bujumbura, where Zuma spoke to the media. We firmly believe that the challenges that Burundi faces can only be resolved through participation by all parties in inclusive dialogue whose results should be peace, security and stability for the people of Burundi. At least 26 Boko Haram militants have been killed after they attacked a camp for displaced people in northeastern Nigeria. The attack in Dikwa town in Bono State also claimed the lives of a soldier and a member of a local vigilante group. Nigeria-based Boko Haram, which seeks to implement its own radical version of Islam, has killed thousands of people in northeastern Nigeria, Cameroon, Niger and Chad since 2009. A report by the UN Human Rights Office describes a series of abuses which have taken place in Libya since the beginning of 2014. They include arbitrary detention, abductions and disappearances, as well as the exploitation of women, children and migrants. The report recommends urgent measures to fight against impunity and to strengthen and reform the justice sector. Widespread violations committed in Libya by all sides to the ongoing conflict there have been documented by the United Nations. Rival political groups and factions have been fighting for control of the North African country, which descended into a civil war following the overthrow of Muammar Gaddafi in 2011. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon has announced that some 21 million U.S. dollars will be allocated 
by a United Nations Emergency Response Fund to provide urgent humanitarian assistance to people in South Sudan. Speaking during a visit to the country, Bon said the protracted conflict and the worsening food insecurity there resulted in the need for life-saving assistance. Approximately $15 million will go towards assisting more than 250,000 people affected by conflict, many of whom are in areas that can only be reached by road. Access is expected to be restricted when the rainy season begins at the end of April. Meanwhile, the United Nations is providing humanitarian aid to displaced people in the Central African Republic whose temporary shelters have been destroyed by a series of fires in January and February. The UN Humanitarian Coordinator Aureline Akbanushi expressed solidarity with hundreds of families whose accommodation was burnt down. UN spokesperson Stefan Dujeric elaborates. He said that humanitarian actors in the country continue to respond to the urgent needs of the people affected by these fires. He added that the humanitarian community stands beside them and continues to support them. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Hello listener, join Channel Africa in celebrating its 50th anniversary. Channel Africa is turning 50 in May this year. Join us as we move through memories of this station since 1966. Send us your contact number to include your memories in our celebrations. Email your contact to info at channelafrica.org or write to us at Channel Africa PO Box 913-103 Auckland Park, Johannesburg 2006. You can also SMS to plus 27 8233259905. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The African Union high-level delegation of heads of state and government headed by South Africa's President Jacob Zuma arrived yesterday in Burundi's capital, Bujumbura. The delegation will meet with the highest authorities of the country and with other stakeholders to hold consultations on the inclusive inter-Burundian dialogue in a bid to end the political crisis hitting the country since April last year. The key objectives of their visit include supporting the East African mediation led by Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni. The delegation met several political and civil society leaders, as Bernard Bankukira tells us from Bujumbura. President Mohamed Old Abdelaziz of Mauritania, Makisal of Senegal, Ali Bongo Ondimba of Gabon, Haile Mariam Desalain of Ethiopia and Jacob Zuma of South Africa seized Bujumbura, the capital of Burundi, on this Thursday as a part of efforts made by the African Union to end the political crisis raging the Central African nation. In his opening speech ahead of their meeting with political party leaders, Jacob Zuma, who led the delegation, reminded Burundians 
how the African Union is deeply concerned by the crisis in Burundi, which pushed to create the team of five heads of states to contribute in finding the solution to the crisis. The African Union Summit of the Heads of State and Government, which was recently held in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, discussed extensively the political situation in Burundi. The summit expressed its deep concern about the situation in the country. The summit also expressed its support for the mediation efforts led by President Museveni of Uganda and urged all parties in Burundi to participate in the mediation efforts in order to find a peaceful solution. The summit decided to establish a high-level delegation comprising of five heads of state and government to visit Burundi to meet with the highest authorities and other stakeholders to consult them on the inter-Burundian dialogue and to urge them to work together to find a conclusive political solution. The South African president at the head of the African Union delegation stressed that only an inclusive dialogue among all political stakeholders is the only way of solving the challenges facing Burundi. He said their objective is to strengthen, assist and support the East African mediation led by Ugandan President Yori Museveni. Our mandate is to consult with all the important players here in Burundi regarding the political situation and to encourage all players to participate in the mediation process facilitated by His Excellency President Museveni and to urge all to engage actively in the inter-Burundian dialogue. We firmly believe that challenges that Burundi faces can only be resolved through participation by all parties in inclusive dialogue whose results should be peace, security and stability for the people of Burundi. Our objectives for this visit are the following. To strengthen, assist and support dialogue between all Burundi stakeholders. To explore mechanisms to support the East African community mediation process led by President Yoweri Museveni of the Republic of Uganda to ascertain ways in which the African Union and the East African community working together can assist in ensuring that the situation continues to improve. That is the mission of this high-level delegation. The meeting with political leaders lasted more than three hours and a half. Participants appreciated the outcomes of the meeting. Agaton Dwasa, one of the main opposition leaders of Burundi, recognized that the delegation is keen to help Burundi to overcome its crisis. For him, it's up to Burundian politicians to overcome their personal interests and commit themselves to a real dialogue. It wasn't uh, just a matter of discussing this issue or that, but uh, it was uh, a meeting focused on each and everyone to present his views with regard to the current crisis of ours. And in conclusion, President Zuma of South Africa has uh, urged us to set up the agenda of the dialogue and uh, also advised us to comply with the state of rule of law because everywhere in the world the courts can pronounce their judgment and you can be happy with it or not but you have to comply with it so i think with regard to genuineness of this delegation i think they want to help burundi 
sort out its problems. So we need all of us to consider that Burundi is more than selfishness or any other source of problems in this country. What is needed is commitment from both sides, government as well as the opposition, to see how do we move forward this process of dialogue so that we can really move and focus on other topics than this crisis. We have to put an end to this crisis and focus on other issues like development or any other relevant matter. Personally, I believe that any situation can be dynamic. We cannot think that we will be in a crisis. Let's hope that if any of us commit himself to address the key issues which are fueling this crisis today, that very soon we can reach good points and then move forward. After all, no nice too long. We must be hopeful that Burundi must overcome this crisis. Since April last year, Burundi entered into a political crisis following President Pierre Nkurunziza to stand for his controversial third term in office, a move that sparked massive protests inside as well as outside the capital Bujumbura. As days went on, the protests escalated into bloody violence. Till now, all efforts to bring all political stakeholders around the table of talks haven't borne any positive results. The African Union decided to take things in hands by appointing the five heads of states on January 31, 2016 to form an African team with the aim of persuading all sides to sit and find a solution to the crisis. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankokira reporting from Bujumbura. I am an African. I owe my being to the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the glades, the rivers, the deserts, the trees, the flowers, the seas, and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land. My body has frozen in our frosts and in our latter-day snows. It has thawed in the warmth of our sunshine and melted in the heat of the midday sun. The crack and the rumble of the summer thunders, lashed by startling lightning, have been a cause both of trembling and of hope. The fragrances of nature have been as pleasant to us as the sight of the wild blooms of the citizens of the felt. The dramatic shapes of the dragon's back the soil-colored waters of the Likwa, Ikreli, Lotugai, and the sands of the Kharahad have all been panels of the set on the natural stage on which we act out the foolish deeds of the theater of the day. At times, and in fear, I have wondered whether I should concede equal citizenship of our country to the leopard and the lion, the elephant and the springbok, the hyena, the black mamba, and the pestilential mosquito. A human presence among all of these, a feature on the face of our native land just defined, I know that none dare challenge me when I say I am an African. This is Channel Africa, informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 
United Nations Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon has used his one-day visit to South Sudan to request President Salva Kiir and his principal political and military opponent, Riek Macha, to establish a transitional government of national unity without further delay. Ban's request comes at a time when Kiir and Macha failed to form the government on three occasions, with Machar pushing for the stationing of his own 3,000-strong military force in Juba before he sets foot there. As James Shimangula reports, the UN chief's visit to South Sudan coincides with reports of renewed, intensified fighting in two regions separately controlled by Kier and Machar. The United Nations Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon has concluded a one-day crucial visit to South Sudan, his second visit since the country became independent from the North in July 2011. Ban's visit comes at a time when President Salva Kiir and his long-time political rival Riek Machar have delayed three times to form a transitional government of national unity, flouting the agreement they signed in August last year. Machar has persistently said he will arrive in Juba to be part of the government only if 3,000 of his troops and police are officially allowed to take strategic positions in the capital city, as well as the deployment of 1,200 police officers in the greater Upper Nile region comprising the oil-rich Malakal and Bentiu states. Speaking at a press conference in Juba, UN Chief Ban Ki-moon decried the suffering of people of South Sudan due to political wrangling by Salva Kiir and Machar. Ban means no words when he sent this strong message to the two leaders. Put peace above politics, pursue compromise, overcome obstacles, establish transitional government of national unity. In many ways, it begins with the signing of agreement. And it must begin now. The UN Secretary General disclosed the amount of money required to avert the worsening humanitarian and economic situation in South Sudan. The humanitarian and economic situation in the country continues to plummet. Over $1.3 billion is needed to address current needs of over 5 million South Sudanese this year alone. I commend humanitarians for their work and courage. Despite assurances for safe and unhindered access in the peace agreement, aid workers continue to be targeted. 45 aid workers have been killed over the last two years, and many more are missing. Concluding his speech in Ijuba, Ban Ki-moon made the following important announcement. I'm announcing today that the United Nations will allocate $21 million from our Central Emergency Response Fund for the people of South Sudan. I urge the international community to show his commitment to the people of South Sudan. Before the UN chief spoke at the Yuba press conference, he held a private talks with his host, President Salva Kiir, disclosing what transpired in the meeting between the UN chief and President Kiir regarding the implementation of the peace agreement South Sudan Information Minister Barnaba Mariali Benjamin had this to say. President assured him of his commitment to implement this agreement. The Secretary General also assured the President that he will urge Riyak Machar to come as soon as possible. The transitional government of national unity can be formed.
They also touch on the humanitarian issues, which the President assured the Secretary General that all the humanitarian agencies will uh, all be given free access to deliver food in all the areas of South Sudan that need relief. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. It's 8.20 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. FIFA will elect its new president today as the World Football Governing Body continues to battle criminal investigations and scandals. Five candidates are standing to replace the now banned Seb Blatter, including South African business tycoon Tokyo Sekhwale. However, many believe a new president will not be enough to reform the organization. From Zurich, Dan Whitehead reports. The top brass of football arrive in Zurich after months of campaigning around the world. They're all hoping to become president of football's world-governing body FIFA, a damaged organization clouded by corruption. Gianni Infantino, the current UEFA General Secretary, and Sheikh Salman of Bahrain, the Asian Football Confederation President, are the two frontrunners. South Africa's Tokyo Sexuale is seen as an outsider at this election after failing to get the backing of the Confederation of African Football. He says FIFA is broken. In the first place, I'm here. Despite any obstacle, my life experience as a fighter, as someone who dies wearing his boots, tells me that I moved from the southernmost part of the world, South Africa, which hosted the best World Cup to date. And I have come this far. I'm used to obstacles. I would like to believe that other candidates who are here are faced with the same. But there are concerns that all five candidates are simply too close to FIFA and those currently under investigation. The organization hopes that whoever is elected its new president will work hard to restore the organization, which has been under such intense scrutiny and ongoing investigations. It's even written on the front wall here at Congress in Zurich, a sign in a multitude of languages saying restoring trust. But there are many who believe that FIFA should be scrapped. Campaigners say the whole setup of the organization means proper reform isn't possible. Damien Collins is a British MP and a co-founder of New FIFA Now. You separate out the commercial arm from the political arm of the organisation. You have proper scrutiny of the way it spends its money. And you make clear to national associations and confederations, if they don't have good governance, if they don't produce audited accounts, then they won't get support. Now, that reform sounds very simple, but is almost impossible to achieve within FIFA's current structures. Up the road from Congress at the new FIFA Museum here in Zurich, Sepp Blatter's legacy remains. FIFA hopes a new president and meaningful reform will ensure the body can remain at the top of the game. Dan Whitehead, Zurich. It's 8.23 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. Africa Rise and Shine. Africa Zorza. Africa Amuka Na Unai.
the Democratic People's Republic of Korea could soon face what the United States has called the strongest set of sanctions imposed by the Security Council in more than 20 years. After seven weeks of negotiations with regional power broker China, the U.S. submitted a draft text to all members of the council that, if adopted, would impose severe punitive measures after North Korea's fourth nuclear test on January the 6th and a subsequent missile launch in early February, both in contravention of existing Security Council re- resolutions. Show and Bryce Peace reports. It's the belligerence of a regime that has got many countries riled up, with council expected to break new ground if the U.S. draft is adopted in the coming days. Listen to the United States Ambassador Samantha Power. These sanctions, if adopted, would send an unambiguous and unyielding message to the DPRK regime. The world will not accept your proliferation. There will be consequences for your actions. And we will work relentlessly and collectively to stop your nuclear program. If adopted and implemented fully, these sanctions would constitute a major increase in pressure compared to the Council's previous actions on DPRK. For the first time in history, sanctions measures will include inspections of all cargo in and out of North Korea, an arms embargo, imposition of financial sanctions targeting banks and assets, a ban on aviation and rocket fuel imports, and several limits on commodity exports from the country, including coal, iron, gold, titanium, and rare earth minerals. For more than a decade, in spite of the international community's efforts, DPRK has taken progressive steps toward its declared goal of developing nuclear-tipped intercontinental ballistic missiles. The international community cannot allow the DPRK regime to achieve that goal. The United States will not allow this to happen. Stiff penalties for a regime that has remained unbowed despite a decade of UN sanctions. Neighboring Japan, now also a Security Council member, lamented North Korea's refusal to adhere to previous resolutions. Ambassador Motihide Yoshikawa Unfortunately, the, uh, there has been a robust, strong four resolutions of the Security Council so far. But uh, looking at the course of action that the government has taken, there has been no change. Steady uh, implementation of the nuclear policy and the uh, missile policy. And the, this time, uh, we believe, we all believe that uh, uh, stronger uh, the measures are necessary. Ambassador Power also tried to address concerns about the impact of the new sanctions. I want to be clear, this resolution is careful not to punish the North Korean people. The North Korean people have suffered so much already under one of the most brutal regimes the world has ever known. Rather, this resolution focuses on a ruling elite that have inflicted so much of that suffering, always privileging the nuclear and ballistic missiles programs over the welfare of the North Korean people. The success of any new measures will depend on their implementation by all UN member states. Council is expected to vote on the draft as early as this weekend. I'm Sherman Bryspees in New York. 
The National Assembly will soon hold a snap debate on racial tensions in South Africa and at its universities. This has been revealed by the National Assembly's Programme Committee Chairperson, Balegambete. The Higher Education Ministry says such a debate would be welcomed, as Mercedes Bassent reports. The SNAP debate has been proposed by the Freedom Front Plus in Parliament. The call for such a debate follows the recent spate of racist remarks and racial tensions on social media, as well as violence currently experienced at various university campuses. During the meeting of the program committee, which is responsible for scheduling debates, Mbete said the debate on racial tensions proposed by the Freedom Front Plus is necessary. Can I report that I also received a letter from Honorable Mulder proposing a snap debate on racial tension and conflict in South Africa, including at university campuses. We are dealing with that application. We are inclined to believe that it's a necessary debate but we have to engage with the relevant ministers before we can finalize it. So by next week, we should be in a position to have certainty on a proposed date. In an interview with SABC News, the Higher Education Ministry considered that such a debate is critical. Higher Education Ministerial Spokesperson Kayen Kwanyana. It's quite an important debate, especially at the level of parliament, which represents the highest form of our leadership as a country. It's true that uh, as department, as government, we are concerned about the emergence of this racialized violence in our institutions of higher learning. Uh, what starts as uh, grievances of students tend to shape up into uh, racialized clashes. So what it highlights is the fact that society as a whole, there's still racial polarization as an underlying feature in our society because universities are a microcosm of society as a whole. They are not disconnected to society. IFP MP and the chairperson of the party's youth brigade, Mkule Kotlengwa, says the tensions currently experienced at universities, such as the University of the Free State, is proof that reconciliation is still a pipe dream and speaks to the fact that the reconciliation agenda has been reduced to not being a process of integration, but rather a once-off event which is celebrated on December 16. So we really do need to explore other avenues in terms of how we bring South Africans together. We must renew the discussion on social cohesion, and we must also learn to understand one another and appreciate our cultures. The instant incidences of violence are not a solution to the problems which are arising out of the racist tensions that are going on. We cannot sort out a problem by creating another problem. So we do condemn in the strongest possible terms acts of violence, but we do not condone acts of racism, whether in action or in word. Meanwhile, Nzimande spokesperson Kayen Kwanyana says Nzimande has been in contact with various stakeholders at the Free State University with the hope that a lasting solution will be found before the end of this week. And that report by Mercedes Bassent. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
A very good morning to you in the headlines. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma says only dialogue will help end the current political and security crisis in Burundi. A local ISIS chief and two aides have been captured in a city near Libya's capital, Tripoli, and the UN to allocate 21 million US dollars to provide urgent humanitarian assistance to people in South Sudan. Those are the stories making headlines. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. For Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yawundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. More than 150 delegates from various sectors from the 15 South African Development Community SADC member states are currently meeting in South Africa to discuss preparedness and response to the impact of El Nino in the region. The SADC consultative meeting is being organized with support from the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization and World Food Program in a region where over 70% of the population depend on rain-fed agriculture for their livelihood. The El Nino event has greatly impacted on food and nutrition security of millions of vulnerable people. Elaborating more on the two-day event is SADC's Deputy Executive Secretary for Regional Integration, Dr. Temba Msongo. The purpose of the meeting is to enable uh, SADC to have uh, a coordinated uh, response in addressing the impact of El Nino, which is the drought that is caused by uh, the change in the climate uh, and that has an impact on agriculture in terms of food security. As we know that uh, most countries are experiencing this uh, crop failure and therefore the food supply is going to be affected and the prices are going to go up. Some parts of the population won't have access to food, so governments need to work together with the other stakeholders, including the private sector, the civil society, the international actors, to ensure that uh, the impact of El Nino on the most vulnerable population is minimized considering that experts acknowledge that the situation is not likely to improve anytime soon. Could you give us an idea in terms of exactly what are the plans to deal with El Nino? In the medium to long term, and some of the issues are also being discussed in SADC, is to try and come out with financial instruments 
like for instance, uh, part of the instrument can be in the form of uh, a fund that uh, member countries uh, set up so that when this thing uh, happens, you can easily use that instrument. But also some of the instrument, they have to be sustainable. You have to use the power of the private sector. The instrument can be in the form of insurance. Countries, as countries, can take insurance, but also to ensure that uh, the uh, farmers, the real producers, in the longer term, also they have access to these uh, uh, insurance uh, instruments, so that in case there is a crop failure, they will be able to draw resources to be able to recover from the crisis. But also the responses should be more on building the broader resilience infrastructure, meaning that for farmers, for instance, you have to make sure that uh, you are able to invest in water harvesting. When there is rain, you'll be able to ensure that waters are stored in dams uh, so that you can irrigate. You have to ensure that you are able to build storage infrastructure so that when you have a harvest in one season, you are able to store that uh, uh, it doesn't get lost. You have to ensure that you build your capability for processing your agricultural products so that if you have tomato at one time, you are able to turn this tomato into uh, tomato paste. But you need the infrastructure for that. But also what we suffer most is that uh, in one country, you might find that part of the country has a very good harvest, but another part of the country has nothing. We lack infrastructure to move products or agricultural products around. We need to ensure that uh, because we are a region, we are working together as 15 countries. If one country has surplus, that country should be able to exploit that surplus by selling the produce to the other countries. And Dr. Mflong, was the region caught off guard or were the warning signs? And if so, how did we get here where we are now dealing with the impacts of El Nino? I think in a sense I would agree it was uh, caught off guard because if it was not caught off guard, we would have responded without raising alarm bells. However, as a region, we have put in place a very good infrastructure for early warning. We have a very good early warning systems. Every time the um, heads of state meet, uh, there will be um, uh, information about how the climate is going to look like, the rains, and what would be impacted if the rains are not falling. That information was given a so long time ago. But I think it is how that information is used but also whether that information is actually transmitted to the actual producers on the ground, the small-scale farmers, the large-scale farmers, whether they access that information, including ordinary people that till for themselves, whether that information is filtering into that level, that has to be questioned. I think we need to try and find some other ways to ensure that we can measure that that information is filtered and we can ensure that actions are taken by those who are responsible. Because if we, as we have been giving this information, we could have long time ago built uh, response measures. So we were, in a way, caught off guard.
That was Dr. Temba Mtlongo, Deputy Executive Secretary for Regional Integration in the Southern Africa Development Community, speaking to Jane Rabutata. A new Greenpeace France investigation on Sockfin and a company owned which owns 38.75 by Barlow Group has revealed the impact of the company's plantations on forests, communities and wildlife in Africa. Irene Wabiwa Nkiembwa, Forest Senior Campaign Manager for Greenpeace Africa, says the investigation found that in the Democratic Republic of Congo and Sao Tome, Principe Sockfin's plantations include primary and secondary forests that store large quantities of carbon, and this contributes to climate change. We published a report in which we explore the fact that a company called Sockfin, which is owned more than 38% by the Bolloré Group, a French group, having a very bad impact on forests in the DRC, in Tome, and many other countries in Africa but also imprisoning a livelihood of communities and other biodiversity. Sotsin, as I said, is um, a group that has a shared order by Group Bolloré. Bolloré is a very big group from France, and it's owned by 50% of its share by a Belgian guy that we call Ibel Fabri. This company is having plantation in more than eight countries in Africa, especially in the DRC in Cameroon and Sao Tome, and the big part of this plantation is created in a very high forested area in Africa. The plantation is really threatening primary and secondary forest, but also is putting in the hair a lot of quantity of carbon, so it's really contributing to the climate change. And now, how is it impacting on the local communities? I will give the case of Sockfin Plantation in the DRC, which is in a product that we call Kassai. In the DRC, Sockfin has a plantation of more than 29,000 hectares. But according to the map from the company that Greenpeace has consulted, we find out that Sockfin expects to have more than 200,000 hectares of forest in the DRC. So the plan of expansion of this plantation in the DRC will really have a bad impact on community livelihood because the majority size of this expansion park will involve the forest area where communities do their agriculture for survive. They do all the fish activities, but also other hunting activities that is really critical, that are really vital for their livelihood. We've also found out that this concession of toxin in the DRC, the workers, they don't have good condition of work and also they have very bad salaries. Two of them have uh, manifest publicly against the bad condition and cheaper salary that they are getting from the team. And we discovered that the team that was leading this manifestation against the team has been arrested by police on the request of this company. So we are really asking Sakfin today to not only make sure that all the conditions for communities and workers are set up in a very good way, but also to implement the policy that we call zero deforestation policy. Because many big investors and companies in other parts of the world, like in Asia, have adopted a zero deforestation policy. And through this policy, they will put in place all the measures that will fight deforestation in plantation. They will preserve the high conservation value forests but also they will conserve all the high carbon stock area in the plantation. And this is not the case yet for the team.
And then today is calling Ensemble Auré, who is holding more than 38% of sexting uh, share, to ask Iber Fabi and his uh, sexting company to adopt zero deportation policy that is credible, is strong in maintaining forest ecosystem, but also that is preserving community rights and also putting all the workers in a good condition. We are also asking Vincent Bolloré, who has a lot of investments in Africa, to adopt zero deforestation policy for all its investments in Africa. And we are also asking the World Bank, through its uh, SFI, the, the International Company for Financial Investments across the world, that to not give the loan that Soxin is asking. Soxin is asking a loan to SFI, a loan of uh, more than 150,000 euros for its expansion across the Africa. So we are asking the World Bank to not contribute to the forestation in giving the loan to Soxin until they develop and put in place the zero deforestation policy. What's the situation of the ecosystems where this Sokfin is operating its plantations? Sokfin operation in the DRC, for example, for now the current size of the plantation is more than 29,000 hectares, and more than 20,000 hectares is located in a very forested area. So this Activities in that plantation is really, really bad for the ecosystem in the DRC, in the forest of the DRC, where we have some rare animals and uh, we have high quality of forest or the forest that is contributing for the fight against the climate change. So, Sustain today is really in a bad position to put, to join the East International Airport to conserve the forest that can contribute to the climate change and uh, carbon emissions. We really urge them to make sure that they stop deforestation, they stop treating community livelihoods, and they adopt a strong zero deforestation policy. That was Irene Wabiwa Kembwa, Forest Senior Campaign Manager for Greenpeace Africa on the line from the Democratic Republic of Congo, speaking to Wandile Kalipa. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhuku. Nigeria's telecommunications regulator has not yet received any payment towards a possible fine from South Africa's telecoms company, MTN. MTN says it withdrew its legal action against Nigeria's regulator over a 3.9 billion US dollar fine and paid $250 million towards a possible settlement. Africa's leading telecoms firm was fined by Nigeria in October last year for failing to disconnect unregistered SIM card users prompting weeks of lobbying to reduce the fine. The International Monetary Fund has started talks with Zimbabwe's government to review its economic performance. President Robert Mugabe's government started defaulting on debts to the IMF, World Bank, African Development Bank and several Western lenders in 1999. Without balance of payment, support or foreign credit, Zimbabwe is running its budget hand-to-mouth, leaving it with virtually no money for infrastructure. 
South Africa's Minister of International Relations and Cooperation, Maiden Guadamashaban, is hosting the High Representative of the European Union on Foreign Affairs, Federica Magirene. As the main objective of the ministerial political dialogue is to assess the implementation of the SAEU strategic partnership by focusing on trade and investment. The EU is South Africa's largest trading partner and largest foreign investor with over 200 EU companies operating within South Africa. Zambia Association of Manufacturers is complaining that banks are worsening the already deteriorating economic situation for local manufacturers. The association says the announced hike in interest rates by commercial banks would worsen hardships faced by small businesses. Banks have started increasing their interest rates on all of their loan facilities in response to tightening liquidity on the financial market that has put pressure on the cost of borrowing. Uganda's largest power project, Karuma Hydro Power Dam, works on a schedule. This according to the Permanent Secretary Ministry of Energy and Mineral Development, which says the construction work is in the range of 27 to 30 percent. The ministry says after carrying out an on-spot inspection of the project on Monday, it's satisfied with the amount of input into the project. The U.S. dollar trades at 15.60 in South Africa, 11.01 in Botswana, 11.30 in Zambia, 7.1 British pound, 9.0 euro, gold, $1,235, platinum, $918 an ounce, brand crude oil, $35, one zero cents a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update, I'm Tabiso Lohoku. Thank you, Tabi. So our sports update up next with Msibudi Makura. Msibudi, it's D-Day for Tokyo Sehwale and all the FIFA presidential candidates. Where do you think, which way do you think this one's going to go? Infantini or who else? I think it's just going to be a close call between um, Gianni Infantino as well as um, um, Ibrahim Al-Khalifa from Bahrain. They are the two candidates that have um, received most positive outcomes regarding their, um, their manifestos. So um, it's going to be between the two and um, it's going to be a close one, but I think, um, I think Al-Khalifa will take it. All right, we're looking forward to the results. Give us an update. Good morning, sports fans. The five men vying for the leadership of World Soccer scandal hit governing body FIFA made their final pitches on Thursday in a contest that could hinge on who secures the bulk of Africa's 54 votes. Delegates from more than 200 countries will elect a new FIFA president on Friday to succeed Seb Blatter of Switzerland. Two days after Blatter and European soccer chief Michel Platini lost their appeals against bans for ethics violations. Whoever takes over from Blatter, who ran FIFA for 17 years, like a globe-trotting head of state, will inherit a very different job with a focus on crisis management after dozens of international soccer officials were indicted in the USA last year for racketeering, money laundering and bribery. Meanwhile, South Africa's Tokyo Sahuale has described FIFA as a broken and a damaged brand. I'm here 
despite any obstacle. My life experience as a fighter, as somebody who dies wearing his boots, tells me that I moved from the southernmost part of the world, South Africa, which hosted the best World Cup to date. And I have come this far. I'm used to obstacles. I would like to believe that other candidates who are here are faced with the same. But they are different. Secondly, we're here about FIFA. FIFA is a house broken and needs to be repaired. You'll hear more when I speak tomorrow on stage. FIFA is a broken house. Football is not broken. At the same time, Jerome Champagne says FIFA needs stability. It's a democracy and I'm, uh, I, will convince the, uh, I will try to convince the Federation, I will discuss with them, I will present myself, I can offer experience, I can offer the, the independence, I think uh, uh, FIFA needs reconciliation, FIFA needs uh, stability, FIFA needs to turn the page of the controversies. Um, I'm linked to all continents, I'm, ne- I'm linked to all countries, but I'm not depending on anyone, I'm independent from so vested interests. Meanwhile, another FIFA presidential candidate, Prince Ali bin al-Hussein of Jordan, says he is the only contender for the post that supports a secret ballot. Prince Ali was talking a day after his request to the Court of Arbitration for Sport for a delay in the vote on concerns over the voting booths was turned down. As a candidate, let me make it clear to you all, I'm the only candidate who respects the fact that this, is a, that this is a secret ballot, and I have not asked any country or any FA to come out and publicly declare support. If it's a secret ballot, then they have the right to vote on the day the way that they choose. So on Football News, former Super Eagles captain Sande Olesi has resigned as coach of the Super Eagles with immediate effect. In a letter sent to the Nigerian Football Federation on Thursday, Olesi tendered his resignation and thanked the NFF for the opportunity to serve the country in the capacity he did. Olesi, who took over the Super Eagles job in July 2015, had a topsy-turvy relationship with the NFF and also had a run-in with a few players. His time as coach was characterized by tiffs with the football ruling house that culminated in an eight-minute rant on social media who um, on social media just a couple of months ago after Nigeria's ouster at the 2016 Chan tournament in Rwanda. And finally, in rugby news, Springbok wing Brian Habana has conceded that it was a daunting task joining the Springbok Sevens squad in Stellenbosch this week, but says he is committed to contributing to the success of the side ahead of their North American legs on the HSBC Sevens World Series to be played in Las Vegas and Vancouver next month. Yeah, 48 hours ago, um, I bought a plane to come to Africa. Very nerve-wracking. Um, pretty tired after, after what was a very full morning. But I'm believably excited. I think the you know the work ethic in this group is absolutely fantastic. You know the way I've been accepted and welcomed today has been you know, really amazing. And you know, hopefully, you know, for my time around, uh, I'll be able to contribute to the success of this team. But um, you know, really excited about what the future could hold, not for myself, but more so for this team. The Zaire Sports News at the South. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
And that's a wrap for of Africa Rise and Shine for today and for the week. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Lebo Munamukolo and Homozomo Pulane, technical producer Maria Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. I'll take us to the top of the hour for the news and another, well, for the news on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to far west africa is malaika with a track title destiny